Hello and good day, everybody. This is Kyla, and this is the State of Health. Today, we're diving into an important topic that may not be as well known as it should be, hepatitis D virus infection, also known as hepatitis Delta virus. Now imagine a virus that's like the annoying younger sibling who always needs help from their older brother or sister. That's hepatitis D for you. It's a pathogenic agent that can't survive on its own. It needs the help of hepatitis B. Think of it like a parasite, leaching off the hepatitis B surface antigen, which is kind of like a protein coat that hepatitis B wears. And just like hepatitis B, hepatitis D is spread through blood and other body fluids. So those who share needles or syringes, like intravenous drug users, are at a higher risk for infection. Now here's where it gets real. Hepatitis D is known to be the most severe and progressive form of viral hepatitis in humans. It's everywhere. But the actual number of people infected worldwide is kind of a mystery. Some studies estimate it's somewhere between 12 million to 72 million people. That's a huge gap, right? It just shows that we need more solid data on this. And here's another twist. This little troublemaker virus is the smallest viral pathogen that can infect humans, and it behaves a lot like the viroids in plants. It has this unique biological makeup, and it's known for causing some pretty serious problems. There are eight types or genotypes of hepatitis D, and they're not created equal. Some types are more common in certain regions, and some cause more severe disease than others. Take genotype 1, for example, it's the most common and is found mainly in Europe and North America. Then there's genotype 3, which hangs out only in the Amazon basin and is known for causing outbreaks of severe hepatitis D. And let's not forget genotype 5, chilling in Africa, which tends to cause a milder disease and responds better to treatment than our ubiquitous genotype 1. The way this virus works is fascinating. Its genome, or genetic material, is a tiny circle of single-stranded RNA, about 1,700 nucleotides long. That's like the smallest paragraph in a massive novel, and it's so small it can only code for one protein called the hepatitis delta antigen. This makes hepatitis D like that needy younger sibling, relying on hepatitis B for pretty much everything else it needs to survive, including infecting new cells and evading our immune defenses. So, you might be wondering, how has the prevalence of hepatitis D changed over time? Picture a heated game of ping-pong back and forth. Over the past 25 years, we've seen a promising trend. Global hepatitis B vaccination programs have been doing their part, reducing the number of people susceptible to hepatitis D. This has led to a welcome decline in hepatitis D infection worldwide. But let's not break out the confetti just yet. The game isn't over. We've still got work to do. Now, without missing a beat, let's roll up our sleeves and dive deeper into the nitty-gritty of diagnosing hepatitis D. The process here is like a medical treasure hunt looking for some specific clues in the body. The big one? The presence of antibodies to hepatitis D antigen, or anti-HDV antibodies. These are like little red flags that your body waves high whenever it detects hepatitis D. But here's the kicker. You should only look for these antibodies in people who have tested positive for hepatitis B surface antigen. This is because hepatitis D depends on hepatitis B. Remember the annoying younger sibling analogy? Yeah, that's why. Now, in this medical detective work, we use something called reverse transcriptase polymerase chain reaction, or RT-PCR assays for short. It's like using a high-tech microscope to look for the hepatitis DRNA, and it's gotten better over time. It's now able to detect as little as six international units per milliliter of hepatitis DRNA in the blood. Unfortunately, not all tests are created equal. Some tests, especially those from local producers in less affluent countries, might not be as reliable. And to make things more complicated, Different international associations have different recommendations about who should get tested for hepatitis D. And guess what? Not enough people are getting tested for hepatitis D, even in developed countries. In a study of over 157,000 patients with chronic hepatitis B in the United States, 
only about 7% were tested for hepatitis D. Now, moving on to the natural history of hepatitis D, there are two forms of infection. The first is co-infection, where a person gets hepatitis B and D at the same time. The second is superinfection, where a person with chronic hepatitis B gets infected with hepatitis D. The clinical course for co-infection is usually self-limited, like getting a nasty flu. But superinfections are often the ones that lead to chronic hepatitis D. And here's where it gets scary. Chronic hepatitis D is more severe and progressive than hepatitis B. In one study over a period of 1 to 15 years, 77% of patients with hepatitis D had a worsening condition, compared to 30% of patients with hepatitis B. And to top it off, hepatitis D infection increased the risk of liver cancer by three times. Now, here's the bummer. In the U.S., there's no approved treatment for chronic hepatitis D. Yeah, I know. Bummer, right? But don't lose hope. They have used something called pegylated interferon alpha, even though it's off-label. And the data on how it works? Well, it's kind of limited, but here's the good news. There are new therapies being developed that are aimed at depriving the virus of the stuff it needs to thrive, activating the body's immune response, or both. But let's get real for a moment. Even though the ideal end goal of therapy would be to completely get rid of the hepatitis B surface antigen, that rarely happens with interferon. So doctors have been considering a sustained viral response, which means no detectable hepatitis D virus RNA in the blood for six months after treatment, as the end goal of therapy. But only about 30% of patients treated with interferon have managed to achieve this, and long-term relapses are pretty common. Okay, now let's talk about some experimental drugs that are showing promise. Lonafarnib, a drug in clinical development, has shown some success. In a small group of patients, it decreased the level of hepatitis D virus RNA in the blood. But let's not get too excited yet, as these are just preliminary results, and we still need more data. Nucleic acid polymer Rep 2139CA, when used with pegylated interferon alpha, led to the loss of hepatitis B surface antigen and undetectable hepatitis D virus RNA in 6 out of 12 patients. Again, these are just preliminary results and need to be confirmed in larger studies. And it doesn't stop there. Other drugs like pegylated interferon lambda and bulivirtide are also in the pipeline. Bulivirtide in particular has shown promise in reducing hepatitis D virus RNA levels and normalizing ALT levels in patients. In fact, the European Medicines Agency has even granted marketing authorization for the 2 mg subcutaneous daily dose of the drug in patients with chronic compensated hepatitis D. And while we're on the subject of antiviral agents, it's important to note that targeting hepatitis B with antiviral agents isn't effective in controlling hepatitis D infection. However, new antiviral agents are being developed that are aimed at a functional cure of hepatitis B infection, which could be interesting for curing hepatitis D. So, there you have it. The world of hepatitis D is a complex one, but researchers are working hard to find effective treatments. And while we don't have all the answers yet, it's clear that the future of hepatitis D treatment looks promising. Stay tuned for our next episode where we will continue to keep you updated on the newest medical news and research. Until then, keep your curiosity peaked and your stethoscope close. Remember, every day is a good day to learn something new, especially in the world of medicine.